That's John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the announcement sheets, a sermon outline that you can use as we look at this text and uh, other scriptures throughout the New Testament that deal with a topic this morning, which is born again. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, there are so many things for us to rejoice uh, about. There are so many things for us to be grateful and thankful for. But at the, the pinnacle, at the, the, the topmost shelf of our, our, our pantry of things to appreciate so much in this life is our relationship with You, that You love us. As, as Jim so eloquently talked about this morning as we, as we gathered around the, the bread and the fruit of the vine in remembrance of the cross. We pray to, to expand our understanding, to, to not live lives that, that are an inch deep and a mile wide, but to be profoundly spiritual, to be profoundly discipled, and to be profoundly disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. To this end we pray, Father, in His name, that You will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And so as we approach this eternal ancient Word, Father, uh, we pray to do so with eyes that see and ears that hear in, in such a way, Father, that we are revolutionized. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all the church said. There was in 2002 a movie that most of the male population just thought was fantastic. Matt Damon, The Born Identity. You know the story. There is a man who's unconscious. He's found floating in the middle of the sea. A fishing boat finds him. They drag him on board. He's unconscious. Conscious. They also find that he's bullet riddled. And when they doctor him up a little bit and he comes to, they realize, as he does, that he has amnesia. That he does not have a clue as to who he is. And it takes him about three movies to discover his true identity. <laughs> now, what is a good idea for Hollywood is a terrible idea in the kingdom of God. You see, every disciple has a born-again identity. Let me say that again. Every disciple has a born again identity now this is what takes us to john chapter 3 in this text that uh, that prentice just read for us you know the story it's nighttime in jerusalem jesus is by himself we we presume and there's a knock on the door and it's nicodemus 
And Nicodemus starts his conversation with Jesus, and Jesus kind of cuts to the chase. And he says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is vexed. He is, these words are disconcerting to him. And finally, after you know, puzzling in his puzzler, he says in verse 4, he says, How can a man be born when he's old? And Jesus in verse 7 says, You have to be born of the water and the Spirit. Do not be surprised that I say you must. You must be born again. Now here's the problem that Nicodemus has. Nicodemus is working from this outside-in approach to life, and especially an approach to God. It is an approach that says to everybody else, and especially says to God, that the externals define, the externals communicate who I am. Now think about it again from the context of Nicodemus's life. He's got the right DNA. He is a son of Abraham. Is he not? He is a Jew. He has the right DNA. Is his relationship with God based on that? And he has a modicum, sort of a, a, an inkling understanding of what it means to be holy because he is a member of the Pharisaical sect. He is a Pharisee. And then on top of that, he has some knowledge of the Scripture. Jesus in verse 10 says, Are you not a teacher of Israel, the nation of Israel? Do you not get this? And then on top of that, he is a man of influence. He's not just any Joe Schmo from Kokomo there in Jerusalem. He is a man of influence because he is a member of the ruling party of the Jews. That is, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. If there's anybody who has their act together and the externals organized in such a way that people look at him and say, that's the kind of man, son, that I want you to be when you grow up, it's Nicodemus. But Nicodemus has a problem. It's that outside-in approach to anything. The outside approach to the outside-in approach to life just does not work. There are three basic. There are more than these, but there are three basic problems with this inside, this outside-in approach. The first is your identity is based on changing realities. If you base it on the facade, on the externals, on what's on the outside, then you're always going to be kind of tossed to and fro in life because it's based. It, the basis of it is on changing realities. Think about it this way. I'm an athlete. I play football. And then one day you're no longer able to play football. Or in the middle of a season you're injured and you can no longer play football. What then? What's your identity? How empty do you feel on the inside then? Or maybe an even more adult example is I'm a businessman or I'm a businesswoman. And then all of a sudden you do something on the job and your credibility and your reputation takes a hit and it nosedives a little bit. What about your 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 reputation at that point? What about your externals and your, your identity at that point? Or you get fired. Or you don't get fired, but there's only so far that you're going to go in that company and all of a sudden the greatness in your own eyes, the greatness of your own self-image has a ceiling to it. What then? Well, the problem is that the identity, these, these externals are a changing reality. The second is sometimes these externals, these labels this outside-in kind of way of labeling people is at times not very kind, is it? Failure, dropout, Democrat, Republican, college-educated, not college-educated, rich, poor. Sometimes these labels are not very kind, are they? And then the most profound problem 
that we should have with this outside in, this externals giving us our definition, is this. They mean nothing to God. There is not a, a, a modicum of merit in God's eyes on these kinds of things. And this is why Jesus has to confront Nicodemus on this. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes to the church, It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the what, church? Gift. It is a gift. It's a present to you from God. Verse 9, not by works. There's the problem. None of this is by works. This, this, it's a gift. It's by grace through faith. It's not by works so that no man can bro- boast. This, this outside-in approach is graceless. It is, it is not redemptive. It is, it is not anything that nurtures or, or enables a human being to flourish in this life. And this is why Jesus has to confront Nicodemus. Here's the truth that Jesus is trying to get across. That disciples get their identity from the gospel. Disciples get their identity from the gospel. Theologically, that means that our identity is based on what God thinks of us. Look at this passage from uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. You know what that means? That means that when God looks at you through your faith in Christ and the grace you have received, what He sees is the righteousness of Christ surrounding you and marking you and decorating you and transforming you. That's what that verse is all about. Back in uh, the middle 1980s, Ellen and I were living in, in Southern California and there was this restaurant not far from our house called Carlos Murphy's. It was this Mexican-Irish restaurant. Go figure. I, don't try to figure. It just is. I mean, sometimes you don't know if you want potatoes or an enchilada, but you're fixed up and you can go to Carlos Murphy's. There was a guy there that was waiting on the table. He was a great waiter. His name was Stuart. We began to, to know this guy over the, the, you know, the, the months that we were attend- going to that restaurant. And we began to make really good friends with this guy. He knew I was a, a minister. We knew that he was a waiter, and we would talk and we'd joke and all these kinds of things. One night, on a Wednesday night, in 1986 or 87, I'm at a Bible study with teens and their parents away from the building. On that Wednesday night, I received a phone call. At the house, Mark, phone's for you. Answer the phone. It's some guys back at the church saying, there's somebody that just walked in off the street. We don't know who he is. He's just some guy off the street who wants, uh, wants to give his life to, to God, but he's just kind of stuck in a couple of places. Would you come back to the building? I said, sure, I'll, I'll be there in five minutes. And about 30 minutes later, I was able to get there. And, and it's San Diego traffic, San Diego traffic. So I, I walk in the door, and it's Stuart, the waiter from Carlos Murphy's. He didn't know that that was the church that I was working with. I had no clue that it was Stuart from Carlos Murphy's. We look at each other and we begin to smile and say, hey, this must be a God thing. And it was. For the next two, two and a half hours, Stuart and I talked. We walked around the parking lot. We walked around the the neighborhood and, and talked about his life and what it was he was trying to do. The problem was is that Stuart had not always been a waiter at Carlos Murphy's. At one time in his life, he had been, uh, for lack of a um, better term, he had been a ninja-type bodyguard for the underworld. He had done some very, very uh, 
horrible, evil things. No mystery about it. Evil things in his mind too, in his life. And he just could not get over the fact that he had been he he it was he was capable of doing these kinds of things. And when I finally got my mind around what it was he was really struggling with, guess what verse I shared with him? Colossians 3 and verse 3. Through faith, Stuart, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when God looks at you through your confession and repentance, He sees a beauty. He sees the beauty of Christ. You see, that's, that's why it's really important for us to, to jettison this outside-in kind of theology, this outside-in way of relating to anybody and especially to God. Disciples get their identity from the Gospel. When God, because of the Gospel, because of what Christ did on the cross, looks at you, He sees a beauty. Now that's the theological background to that. But there's also a practical background to that. The practical out, outlay is that we stop looking horizontally to get our identity and we start looking vertically. In other words, a God-blessed self-image is better than a good self-image. Does that make sense? Because what the world describes as a good self-image is really just based on the externals. If you want to feel good about yourself, then get good grades. If you want to feel good about yourself, then do some nice things for some people. Give some money. A God-blessed self-image is better than a good self-image. You know why? Because your life is hidden with Christ and it's in God. And when God looks at you, because the verse, that verse being true, what He sees is a beauty. A guy out on the West Coast by the name of Rick Warren says it this way. He says, you know, when you're called into the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God is inside of your heart, you don't get a new leaf. You don't turn over a new leaf, but you get a new life. And that's why Peter says in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, For you have been born again. And then over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, the new what? Creation, the new creation has come. The old has what, church? Gone. The new is what? Here. And all of this is from God who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ. Not through the externals, not through the outside in, but through Christ. Now here's the truth that Jesus was trying to get across to Nicodemus. The new birth is the most radical experience a human being can encounter in this life. It is more radical, it is more exhilarating than jumping out of an airplane with a parachute. It is the most radical experience a human being can encounter in this life. Now, what is it that we experience? The first thing is forgiveness. The first thing is forgiveness. Now, now most Christians get this. They look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Then over in the second chapter he says, Consequently, because that first chapter stuff is true, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also, and also, members of what? His household. So this is what God is doing. He's telling you, stop looking at the external. Stop looking at the facade. It, let's go deeper than that. Let's not be an inch deep and a mile wide as people. Let's understand that it begins with forgiveness 
of all of our sins. And that forgiveness means that you have not just been transferred into a kingdom, but you've been transferred literally into the family of God. That's what we experience every Sunday morning when we come together with each other. The fact that we're family with each other because our sins have been forgiven in Christ. Now, we get that. But there is a part of this that I, I want to slay as mightily as I can this morning that, that sometimes every once in a while, not all the time, but every once in a while you still get a, a whiff of it in our own collective theology. And that is that there is a one-to-one correlation with a prayer for forgiveness with the one sin that we commit. Which every once in a while you still hear people talk that way and it's a complete misunderstanding of what that forgiveness and grace is all about. But I can remember this thing being even debated while you know, we were in college and you even hear it from time to time in conversations where here's the example. That if you're going over the, uh, a mountain and, and, and you slide off of the road and as you're going off of the cliff into a four million mile chasm and it's certain death and you think something or you say something that is a sin and if you don't pray for forgiveness in that moment then you're lost. And even though that's an extreme example, there is a lot of validity to that emotionally and what we experience on a day-to-day basis. I mean, we, we, we sin and we know it and we do the right thing and that is, God, I'm sorry. I, 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 I want to do better. I, I Forgive me of my sins. And so for about five minutes, we feel pretty good. And we feel, whew, you know, I'm, I'm good with God right now. But then about another 10 or 20 minutes passes by and we say, man, you know what? I may have thought some things or I may have done some things inadvertently or some things that I wasn't aware of that may be against God and God is angry with me. I've got to pray. And, and so there becomes this one-to-one correlation between a prayer of forgiveness and the forgiveness of that sin that, that we've committed. Listen, friends, that is a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be in Christ, to be hidden with Christ in God, for your life to be graced by the cross of Jesus. Let me read to you from Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. After Paul has said all of these things about, about sin and how, how we find relationship with God, he says in verse 1, Since we've been justified through faith, we have what? Peace. Now, if there's a one-to-one correlation between my prayer for forgiveness and the sin so that I'm saved, does that sound like peace? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now what? Stand. What you need to picture in your mind is grace like like a gigantic pool and you're standing in it. And you know what that confession of sin is all about and the asking for forgiveness? It's the same kind of thing that happens in a family where everybody knows what their relationship is and they want to maintain a healthy relationship with each other. You know, with my, with my wife and with my children and they with me, when we do something wrong against each other, it doesn't mean that we're out of the family until we ask for forgiveness to come back in. But to maintain the health of that relationship, what do we do? Man, I'm sorry, I don't ever want to do that again. Can you forgive me? Can, can we... Can, can we work this out and process this in such a way that we have health in our relationship once again. Listen, that kind of confession is about maintaining health and peace in a relationship, not about the validity and the strength of that relationship. You stand in grace. You are forgiven in Christ. 
We get that. But then number two, the one that we struggle with sometimes and we don't always move into the way we should is transformation. While we like the forgiveness part, we don't always dig the transformation part. And sometimes we don't even believe, sadly, that the transformation part is possible. But the call to be a changed individual, the new creation, to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth is couched in the most fundamental theology of the Bible. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And what do you have? You have two things primarily in that text. You have God's Spirit and you have God's Word. And the Spirit is hovering over the void and the darkness and the deep. And you have God's Word that speaks and all of a sudden there is creation. Then you go over to the New Testament and you have Word preached and believed and indwelling of Spirit and Paul says new creation. The same thing happens when God recreates a human being. It's, it's God's Word and God's Spirit entering a human life. You know, for a lot of years uh, before we... We moved to San Antonio. Ellen and I and our kids, we lived up in the northeast corner, about as northeast corner as you can get in Kansas, Kansas, uh, smack dab between Topeka and Kansas City. And one of the things that just happened all of the time there during the winter was that there, there was ice and there was snow and then there would be more ice and then snow and then the snow would melt a little bit and then freeze up again. It was just ice everywhere. And so during the, those, those months that there was a lot of ice and you know, snow on the ground and on the roads, you would have sand and you would have even worse, salt being put on those streets. And you would drive over it, drive over it, drive over it. And it was a safety thing, and so you wanted it to happen. But at the same time, what does salt do to a vehicle? Corrodes it. I was driving at that time the most beautiful Ford Bronco 2. Big tires on it. White vehicle with some blue trim on it. It, it was just a basic vehicle. I love that vehicle. But you know what? The truth be said, it was an old clunker. And that salt on that vehicle made it even more. It made it a crusty old clunker. It's what that salt did to that vehicle. And the first thing that everybody up in the northeast part of Kansas did, and they do this probably all over the world where there's salt being used and sand being used on, on roads during the winter, is you go to the car wash and you get the most... Uh, exhaustive cleansing of the undercarriage of your vehicle that you can get. And so you pay the guy the money, they drive it into one end of this building, and you stand back, and you wait, 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 and then all of a sudden that car comes out on the other side, and guess what? It's been cleaned up, and it's been sprayed down, but it's still the same old clunker. It would take a miracle for that Ford Bronco to 1986 with about 170,000 miles on it, Come in one inside, go in one side of that building, get sprayed down, and then come out on the other side, a Porsche 911. <laughs> My son prayed for that all the time. Don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But that is what the gospel does. The miracle of the new birth is the supernatural release from the power of sin and the beginning of a day-by-day -day transformation into the image of Jesus. At some point... You stop being a gossip. And you start being a person that builds other people up by the kind of words that you use on a daily basis, which doesn't always mean encouragement. Sometimes you have to admonish. But your words are constructive. It means that you stop being self-centered and selfish with your money, but all of a sudden you become generous. 
with your money because you realize deep down that God is being generous with you every day of your life. And you stop being biased or racist against people of different languages and skin colors and you begin to see that the power of the gospel is God bringing together all of creation at the foot of the cross of Jesus. That happens on a day-to-day basis. C.S. Lewis refers to... We, we love C.S. Lewis in this church. He's a smart writer. It's so insightful. He says that when you become a Christian, that God changes you into a mini-Christ. I will never look like the carpenter from Nazareth physically and literally. But what God is wanting to do on the inside out, not the outside in, but the inside out, is to help me through His Word and through His Spirit to look like Jesus. To be the mini-Christ. From a negative side, you, you know, one of the things that I hope we, we never really have to do unless it's completely scripturally necessary is to disfellowship somebody. And you know when we disfellowship somebody... You, 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 there's a lot of things that are said about that. You know, how can you have fellowship with somebody who doesn't have fellowship with you, a broken fellowship? You, you know what? At the core of this fellowship is, is the statement, the declaration of the church that this person does not deserve to wear the name of Jesus. That this person no longer deserves to wear the name Christ. That's what this fellowship is all about. We're turned into many Christs. We are, we are given the Word and we're given the Spirit. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 6. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. you get that? The life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, meaning Christ lives His life to God, so do we. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Why? You're being transformed. Forgiven and transformed. Changed. Reformed. Spiritual formation and forgiveness. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself, offer every part of yourself to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin, my friends, shall no longer be your master. Because you're not under the law, but under grace. So many books out there today that want to define what success is in your life. These words help us as disciples to define what it means 
to be successful. And this is, quite frankly, why the world is, is not listening with the, the degree of attentiveness that it should to the church. The gospel is never, it's not good news, and it's never good news if it is preached by people who are still enslaved to the old life. Ben's going to lead us in a song. And some of our shepherds are going to come down here to the front. And, and my prayer has been all week that we get our minds around the fact that we are forgiven and that that means a solid relationship with God. It means that we're brought into relationship with Him. Nobody can take us out of His hand. But at the same time, it doesn't stop there. We are disciples. We are, we are many Christ. We are transformed by God's Word. We are new creations. We are people of the kingdom. We are people that by, day by day, as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 18, that by the Spirit, day by day, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus. That was God's plan, Romans chapter 8, to be from before there was even a creation, that we would be conformed, that human beings would be conformed to the image of Christ. If that doesn't describe you this morning, the forgiveness part or the transformation part, then today is the day to make that change, to make that decision, to, 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 to cross that Rubicon and never look back, to put your hand to the plow and never look behind you when it comes to following Jesus with all of your heart and becoming all that God has, has, has destined you to be with your life in Christ, in, uh, hidden with Christ and with God. If that describes you this morning, come and talk to our shepherds as we stand and sing together.